In the summer of 2017, President Trump was looking for a Top Gun lawyer to spearhead his defense in the sprawling Russia investigation being conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller. And so he and his advisors reached out to one of the heaviest hitters they could find, William Barr, former Attorney General of the United States under President George H.W. Bush. At one point, sources tell Yahoo News, Barr was even ushered into the White House to meet with the president. Would he be interested, Trump asked him. Barr demurred. He had other obligations, he told the president. He'd have to think about it. The talk among Trump and his top advisors about hiring Barr as chief defense lawyer didn't stop there. It continued for months until as late as this spring, when the president found another candidate far more eager for the job, Rudy Giuliani. But now, in a twist few could have anticipated, Trump has tapped Barr for an even more important position, to be his new attorney general in charge of the Mueller investigation. What does that mean for the future of the Russia probe? And what can be learned about the direction of the investigation from the eye-popping new memos filed by prosecutors this week in the cases of Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn? Those are our subjects on this special edition of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. So uh, a lot to digest here. The nomination of the anticipated nomination of uh, Barr is uh, really fascinating on multiple grounds. He's somebody uh, you and I have known for years. We covered him when he's he the was... first attorney general I covered. Actually, he was he was the <laughs> right. acting attorney general, still actually auditioning for his job under yeah. uh, George H.W. Bush. So we go way back. I look forward to talking about uh, Bill Barr. Right. And I got to say, I mean, there's a lot we can uh, talk about with Barr, his uh, rather uh, really strong views about executive power, executive privilege. Those are issues that are going to be front and center in dealing with Congress, uh, the new Democratic uh, House in particular next year. But, you know, this back story of him and his dealings with the Trump White House is really something I think a lot of people are going to focus on. The idea that the president tried to hire him as his defense lawyer, couldn't get him for reasons we'll discuss, and now ends up putting him in charge of the investigation he was going to be defending the president in is quite a twist. <laughs> quite a twist. Although, remember, yeah. remember, Trump did interview Bob Mueller to be head of the FBI <laughs> before yeah. Bob Mueller became special counsel to conducting the witch hunt. Yeah. 
Yeah, so. yeah, excellent, excellent point. Um, <laughs> either uh, defend him in the witch hunt or or conduct the witch hunt. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, you know, uh, which route do you take? But look, let's talk a little bit about these memos uh, that came out because um, there's a lot to digest there. Look, uh, the big headline, I think, is certainly the fact that now the federal prosecutors in the Southern District are uh, flatly saying that... Uh, Cohen made illegal campaign finance payments at the direction of the president himself. And not only that, with the intent to influence the 2016 campaign, right? Because that's the threshold for these campaign finance violations, intent. Right. So, you know, then the next question is, okay, what flows from that? What can flow from that? As you know, we have discussed so many times on this show, standard DOJ policy is you can't indict a sitting president. Those are the legal precedents laid out in uh, a number of uh, Office of Legal Counsel memos. By the way, William Barr was once the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department many years ago. And um, what flows from this? The only other remedy for this alleged illegal conduct is an impeachment proceeding. Well, there's, so, one, there's one step before you get to that, and that is whether the Southern District prosecutors explicitly decide to name Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator which obviously does not mean that he's going to be indicted, but it would have a big kind of political punch. And then then the question, what happens next? And well, the only well, option I, is, well, there are two options. There's impeachment, obviously, but there's also they could prosecute Trump after he leaves office. I think the statute of limitations runs in like 2022. So if he wins right. a second term, maybe out of reach of prosecutors. Right. I wanted to uh, tease out, let's say, that uh, Jerry Nadler, the new chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, wants to um, have an impeachment hearing that would include this material think about what that hearing would look like and who your potential witnesses are. Stormy Daniels, the porn star, Karen McDougal, the Playboy model, David Pecker, the National Enquirer editor-in-chief. Uh, it's hard for me to see uh, that um, the Democrats are going to be eager to have a parade of witnesses such as that in order to make that the grounds oh. for an impeachment proceeding. Okay, okay, Esrikov, but what were you expecting? A sober, <laughs> dignified impeachment of Donald J. Trump? Obviously, yeah. it was going to be a circus. I think the country is sort of expecting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I think that uh, the Democrats clearly would like other material. Maybe they could rope this in if they go down that road. Well, uh, the problem for the Democrats is what you've pointed out in the past on this podcast, yeah. which is that the allegations are eerily similar to the allegations against Bill Clinton. And concealing a consensual sexual right, affair. Right, right. And right. Democrats were right. not on board with that impeachment. And yeah. ultimately, he, 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 while he was impeached, he was acquitted by the Senate. So I think right. that creates some discomfort for Democrats. And I right. agree with you. They right. would much prefer a, you know, a kind of a corruption trial involving cozying up to the Russians and Trump's business deals and uh, as opposed to the circus uh, that uh, would ensue if it ends up being about uh, Stormy Daniels and Terry McDougal and Michael right, Cohen right, and that whole right. cast of, of yeah. characters. 
Right, right. And, you know, a small caveat, not necessarily a small caveat, but caveat is, look, there are, uh, there are details about how these illegal payments were made in which uh, do implicate fraud by the Trump organization, phony invoices about IT expenses and legal retainers as a justification for making these payments that Cohen through this, you know, shell company made to the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. So, you know, it's not nothing, but at its core, it is is about uh, covering up uh, the relationship that the president had with a porn star. Yeah. Um, so, not the most edifying. Yeah. But let's let's. Uh, well, yeah, about- I was going to say. Look, I mean, the, clearly the most tangible, concrete evidence of crimes relate to Stormy Daniels and payment of hush money. But there is some intriguing stuff in in these sentencing memorandums that go to the Russia investigation and potentially collusion. So I think we should talk about those. In Mueller's memo about Cohen, he makes reference to this Russian national who has communications with Cohen offering synergy between the Trump Tower project and uh, Trump's presidential campaign. That was a new element. My understanding is this involves a uh, Olympic weightlifter who Cohen was put in touch with. Okay, so there are by... colorful characters in the Russia investigation too, right? So it's the, <laughs> yes, the Russian well, investigation may not be the most dignified investigation either. Okay. Yeah, let's call the weightlifter as a witness <laughs> if we can get him. The, the most serious allegation, clearly, was what had come out you know, the previous week about the continued discussions that Cohen had with people in the Kremlin itself, a special assistant to Dmitry Peskov, the press secretary for Vladimir Putin, about Kremlin help in securing land and financing for the Trump Tower Moscow project, a project that in the uh, memos, in uh, in Mueller's memo filed yesterday, he says that could have uh, earned hundreds of millions of dollars for the Trump organization. This was big money, a big project. Cohen had said it ended in January of, uh, of, of 2016. In fact, talk about it went, you know, continued for at least six months later. Further evidence in this memo about um, uh, possibly setting up a meeting between Trump and uh, Putin themselves in the fall of 2015. Would that have been to discuss the future of U.S.-Russia relations or would that have been to discuss a business deal that could make the president a lot of money. It seems to be that maybe both would have been on the table. The meeting never took place, but it's further evidence of further contacts between the Trump campaign, the Trump organization, and the Kremlin itself. It doesn't get us to the magic word collusion, an active conspiracy in which each side would do something to help the other, but it is certainly more smoke and is an explanation for why this investigation is taking so long. Yeah. And we just shouldn't lose sight of the, I think the really, in some ways, the most important issue here uh, in terms of the whole Moscow Trump Tower deal. And that is that when Donald Trump is running for president and is getting close to getting the Republican nomination and is also talking about how he's going to change our relationship with Russia and he wants to have a better relationship with Russia. He is in the middle of negotiations to build this Trump Tower in Moscow that involves not just members of the Russian government, but potentially Vladimir Putin himself. And the American people don't know this. 
I can't think of information more important in some ways for the American people to know to make a, a informed decision about you know who they want to nominate or who they want to be their president than knowing that the guy who's running is conflating his business interests with policy issues. And right. so and I want to actually go back to one other thing, you know, the weightlifter that you mentioned. Yes. You know, in the end, according to the sentencing memorandum, Michael Cohen does not follow up on that offer. But if you look at the footnote in that memorandum, it explains why. It says the defendant explained that he did not pursue the proposed meeting, which did not take place in part because he was working on the Moscow project with a different individual who Cohen understood to have his own connections to the Russian government. So, <laughs> right, so right. you know, what does that mean? It means like, uh, hey, yeah. I didn't, I didn't need that, you know, Russian grifter who was, <laughs> who was right, trying right. to, I had you my know, own Russian. I had my own Russian right, grifter. Right. It just makes yeah. the point that you know, as you read these documents, the level of probing by the Russian government, the number of times that Russians are finding their way into the campaign and ple- people close to Donald Trump and. They're, you know, getting responses from the Trump people, and they're certainly not getting rebuffed. And importantly, on not a single occasion, any of these times did the Trump campaign or people connected to the Trump campaign think about going to the FBI and reporting these probes by the Russians, which clearly was part of a intelligence operation that they must have known. The FBI? Why would you go to the FBI? Let's remember, and we should uh, certainly take note of the Manafort uh, memo as well. You know, Manafort, who would become the campaign manager, was under investigation by the FBI even while he was running the uh, Trump campaign. And we should take note of some of what's in that Manafort memo. First of all, the fact that what did he lie about? He lied about his contacts with Konstantin Kalimnik his uh, loyal deputy who had connections to Russian military intelligence. That was in a court document that Mueller's people filed last year, identifying uh, Kalimnik as a uh, as a Russian military intelligence asset. And even after he pleads guilty and agrees to cooperate with Mueller's investigation, he continues to lie about what his contacts with Kalimnik were. And that does raise a whole host of questions about why. Why does Manafort, at the highest risk to himself, continue to conceal from Mueller's team what he was talking to Kalimnik about and how many times he spoke to him? So that's really eye-popping. And, you know, does that suggest that Kalimnik's got something on Manafort? Is Manafort afraid of disclosing to the U.S. government what his dealings were with this um, Russian military intelligence asset? And then the other really um, significant thing in that Manafort memo, uh, I think, is the fact that he was continuing to be in contact with Trump with, administration with Trump administration about officials well after he had already been indicted and was headed to trial. Yeah. And he's lying about that. In February 2018, I'm reading from the memo here, Manafort had been in communication with a senior administration official up through that moment. February 18. He was indicted in 2017. Yeah. Well, look, we we don't know this, but it raises the intriguing possibility that he's in there talking to the Trump administration about what he should be saying and what he shouldn't be saying. And that may be part of a who knows, maybe that's part of a 
uh, negotiation about a potential pardon, right? Right, uh, I think right, prosecutors right. are really interested in those conversations. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of uh, uh, of little tidbits in that uh, Manafort memo. The evidence demonstrates Manafort lied about the, his contacts as, with administration officials. In a text exchange from May 26, 2018, Manafort authorized a person to speak with an administration official on Manafort's behalf. What about? What did he want to get communicated to the administration, to the president, that deep into his own legal troubles, legitimate questions that we should all have answers to? Absolutely. So let's, uh, since we started out talking about Bill Barr and um, the idea that he is going to be the new attorney general, that Trump, the, the president has tapped him for that position. We've got an excellent guest who can shed light on Bill Barr, somebody who worked with him closely for many years, Tim Flanagan. Tim, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks, good to be with you. So Bill Barr, a guy you know well, work closely with, what's your take on uh, Trump tapping him to be the next AG? I think Bill is probably the best choice that uh, Trump could have made from many different perspectives. I mean, he brings the credibility with the department at a time when internally, I mean, the department really needs a credible leader. And they really need somebody who has a legacy of respect in the department, and Bill brings that in abundance. The Bureau, the FBI as a component of the Department of Justice, the you know, main justice in the U.S. Attorney's offices all need a boost, frankly, at this point in time. And I think Bill is great from that perspective. I think he's uh, you know, strong, easily confirmable, law and order type attorney general. I think regardless of where he is on specific issues around the president, I think he's going to be viewed as a very credible pick for All the right, office. Yes. Why do you think Bill Barr at this stage in his career would actually want this job? He's already been attorney general. This is a guy, we know him well. He doesn't suffer fools. He's a conservative, but still kind of within the four corners of mainstream conservatism. And, you know, he's a pretty serious guy who's got a pretty good reputation to uphold. And as we know from the previous attorney general and a bunch of other cabinet officials, there's a lot of incoming fire from this president, usually on Twitter. And um, it's not, you know, it's not any much fun to deal with. So why, why take the job? Yeah, I, I was actually worried you were going to ask that question. <laughs> I knew you would. Um, I, I don't have a good answer to that. I do have an answer to it that gets suffices for the moment. If Bill had asked me about this, which he, of course, didn't, uh, I'm not one of his close confidants, but if he had asked me, I would have said, you know, you're crazy. You have all of the credibility and reputation and experience you'll ever need. Why do this at this time under these circumstances? And so, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, why does anyone take the job of attorney general? Well, some of the, you know, some of the candidates whose names were tossed around might take the job in order to enhance their their reputation. I mean, it's part of their natural like creation of a personal legacy of sorts. Bill never seemed to me to be much focused on his personal legacy. And certainly he already has his passport stamped as the attorney general of the United States working for, you know, in the George H.W. Bush administration. And 
did a tremendous job and is very highly thought of from that experience. He doesn't need money. Uh, he, he's not he's not hoping to go in and be attorney general and go out and cash in with a big DC law firm. He's already got money. You know, he's he's been extremely successful in the business world and otherwise. So from my perspective, if you take away ambition and other forms of personal reward, you just got to ask myself, what's left? And I think, although it may sound just a tad corny, what's left is patriotism and Bill's understanding that the Department of Justice really needs a leader like him. There were no alternatives that I heard described who could have done uh, as good a job as Bill can do. And I think he also felt that because the president asked him, I understand the president personally asked him, that this was something that he should do in response to a call to duty, as and, it were. Yeah, and, and one, one little tidbit that I picked up talking to another friend of his, which you know, may tend to support what you're saying, is that he actually had been – the White House had reached out to him on multiple occasions over the past – year or even longer about the AG's job, and he kept rebuffing them. And at the time, it was because Sessions was in there, and he thought that Sessions could do a credible job of defending the Justice Department, defending the rule of law, basic, you know, kind of constitutional principles. And so once Sessions was out, and this guy, Matt Whitaker, was in, who really didn't have any real credentials to run the department and, you know, by all appearances seemed like a political hack, he felt like maybe now I do have to answer the call. Tim, just uh, uh, so our listeners uh, can be clear, you worked with Bill Barr when he was the attorney general. What was your position at that time? Yeah, I worked with him when he was first when he was deputy attorney general. I came into the office of legal counsel where he had been the assistant attorney general just after he was promoted out of that office to be the deputy uh, attorney general. And then I also worked with him when I was assistant attorney general in that office, and he was the attorney general. And then you later had dealings with him. You were deputy White House counsel under President George W. Bush. And um, as I recall it, Bill Barr, then, of course, in private practice, I think he was at Verizon then, was the one who first was urging the idea of using military commissions for uh, prosecuting al-Qaeda terrorists post 9-11 and would point to that uh, plaque on the, uh, I think, outside the OLC office about the Nazi saboteurs who were prosecuted under military commissions during World War II. Now, I, I think it's I think that plaque, if I remember correctly, is actually outside the office of the the assistant attorney general for civil rights, but oh, be that as okay. it may. Uh, <laughs> All right. um, Thanks um, for the Bill, correction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah Bill, Bill was certainly one. He was not the, the only voice that we heard at that time urging military commissions, but he was one of them and one that I paid close attention to because you know, everybody who knows Bill Barr well knows that he is extremely well-read and thinks has delved deeply into the history of the department of the United States. And if he comes forward with an idea based on history, the trial of the uh, Nazi saboteurs, for example, you, you can bet that his understanding of it is not superficial. It's going to be uh, significant. And well, I recall but, uh, the conversation yeah. with him in which he explained the precedent and in which I listened attentively and uh, obviously you know, President Bush ultimately George W. Bush listened attentively, and we went forward with that 
as part of the approach to dealing with the immediate threats at that time. So his love of history and his kind of deep knowledge and all the reading he's done reminds me of a story, something that I actually witnessed many, many years ago. I don't know if it was his confirmation hearing or, I don't know, some hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee back in the 90s or late 80s. And the question had to do with executive power, something he was passionate about. He he was like a maximalist on presidential power in in some ways. And uh, Joe Biden, I think, who was at the time, I think he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, asked the question. And Barr, as I recall, said something like, shall we begin with Aristotle? <laughs> and then <laughs> and then he began to like draw a line from that to like the principle of like separations of separate branches of government, so on and so forth. But anyway, did that when you mentioned his reading and his love of history, that just came to mind. So I had to bring it up. Yeah. Well, can I bring up a, a question about more recent history, <laughs> your time at the Justice Department? Because what fascinates me about that is you were there as assistant attorney general for OLC. Barr was AG. And the assistant attorney general in charge of the criminal division was one Robert Mueller. So, you know, the idea that Barr had that relationship with Mueller, what can you tell us about that? How closely they worked together, what kinds of cases they worked together? Were there any issues that came up during that period that you remember in which they had differing views or, you know, what do you remember about all that? Let me just add. You just say quickly what a privilege it was to serve with Bill and Bob and uh, that team at the time. But in terms of controversy or disagreement, I don't recall uh, anything specific. I do recall in the Bill's AG morning staff meetings where Bob and I were both in attendance that Bob would occasionally describe an action and Bill would never criticize it directly, but he might, he might use humor to indicate some skepticism. And usually that resulted in Bob or any other component head at that at those meetings, me included, uh, going back and taking a further look at whatever was being proposed. Uh, anything you can uh, think of that, uh, can you flesh uh, that out? Give us an example. That, it's been, been too long, I'm sorry. Um, oh, right. Just a, you know, he's got a great sense of humor and wit, he knows how to take ideas apart. So if you were just spouting nonsense, he would, there was little humor involved. There was basically incisive analysis, but he's it's been too long for me to come up with the specific examples. But they had a relationship, and I think that's probably what's significant uh, for going forward now, because you know Barr is going to be in charge of the Mueller investigation, an investigation that the president believes is a witch hunt and should be shut down. Yes, they've had a they had a relationship. I believe they still have a relationship of some sort, and that relationship was cordial. It was respectful. It was friendly. It was even, you know, it was even jocular at times. But Bill certainly had respect for Bob Mueller. So I want to go back to what the dynamics. I mean, this is obviously we'll be speculating somewhat here, but what the dynamics in that the relationship between Barr and Trump will be, assuming Barr is confirmed, because. You know, I think Barr loves the Justice Department. I have no doubt that he is a, you know, believes in the rule of law and in, you know, all of these principles. You got a president who blows past those lines all the time, at least in his rhetoric and in other ways as well. This is a president who tweeted, for example, criticizing his last attorney general, Jeff Sessions, uh, because the Justice Department was not prosecuting his political rivals 
in the uh, run-up to the midterm election. So how does Bill Barr deal with that? How is he going to respond to Trump? How is he is he uh, constitutionally able to to handle a situation like that? A couple of things. I mean, first of all, Bill is tough, and he's not likely to be pushed around. I know Jeff Sessions, a tough guy too, but my impression is that Attorney General Sessions allowed the tweeting and the and such to go on and to gather momentum to the point where I think he was essentially being abused. I don't think Bill is Bill is not a victim of abuse. Uh, I think he <laughs> would he would he would much sooner, I think, go into the Oval Office. Uh, make sure the door is shut and have, you know, have it out with the president over this early on. I mean, I think Bill is very direct. He is blunt, I think is the word he used earlier. I don't think that he's going to sit there and take it the way I thought Sessions did. I also think Bill is extremely smart politically and will recognize the issues on which there's likely to be disagreement and look for opportunities to build the relationship and the understanding with the president on those issues to try to head off the tweet storm. Now, if it came to it, if nonetheless, you know, Bill's being attacked, I don't know that Bill has a Twitter account, but he, he, he just might get one. And I, I wouldn't think, <laughs> because, you know, Bill is, is witty, he's engaging, and I think he can fit his engaging personality into short tweets. And so I don't think that that's going to be a useful way for the president to direct the Department of Justice going forward. I hope there's a much more sort of collegial an attorney general who interacts with the president uh, on a, a more sort of, pardon the expression, but man-to-man basis. I can't think of a more uh, uh, exciting prospect than the idea that there'll be a tweet battle between the president and his attorney general uh, every morning <laughs> for us to wake up to. Well, let's um, Let's hope we never get there. <laughs> All right. But let me let me take you back to when you uh, started out. You said that uh, Bill will be easily confirmable. But I want to just point out a couple of things. We started out this show with a little bit of news, which you may not have heard, which is that last year when uh, the president was looking for somebody to spearhead his legal team, he reached out to Bill Barr. And there was actually even a brief meeting in the, in the White House in which uh, the president asked him if he was interested uh, in taking over the legal defense. Now, Barr demurred. He didn't do it. He said he had other obligations. But his advisors continue to talk about hiring Barr as chief defense lawyer as recently as this spring when instead Instead, Rudy Giuliani got the job. So you put that piece together with the fact that Barr has taken a few pot shots at uh, at the Mueller investigation, particularly about the perception of uh, hiring all those uh, members of his team who have donated to Democrats. And it's certainly going to be something that the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee will be drilling down on during the confirmation hearings about his contacts with the White House prior to all this and what assurances he can give that he is going to fully protect the Mueller investigation. And by the way, before you answer that question, one of the other things he said, which has gotten a lot of attention, is that it wouldn't necessarily be inappropriate for the Trump Justice Department to investigate Trump's 2016 rival for the White House, Hillary Clinton. As to the first part of that, Mike, I guess I don't get how the failure, Bill's decision not to come in and be Trump's part of his legal advisor team 
how that would be troublesome for Bill, because he made the decision not to come in after all. So he, he's not coming from the White House. He's not coming from the position as a the Giuliani position right now, the public defender of the president in any sort of meaningful way. You know, in terms of past views that Bill has expressed regarding former Secretary Clinton be investigated, well, you know, that's a broadly held view. I mean, that's not unique to Bill Barr. But I do think that it's something that before Bill did anything like that as attorney general, he would be very well grounded in the facts of, of the case. And would I have complete confidence that he would not be doing it. If he made any decisions, they would not be made on the basis of the politics of the moment, but rather uh, the law and the need to uphold the law. Your take on where we stand in the Russia investigation right now, we had these memos that came out uh, last night about uh, Cohen and Manafort in the Cohen one. In the the memo filed by the Southern District, they flatly accuse him of engaging in uh, making illegal campaign finance payments at the direction of the president of the United States, which is not something you normally see in a Justice Department memo. And of course, there was also additional details about further contacts between Cohen and uh, various Russian figures during the campaign itself. Let's take the first one, the illegal campaign finance uh, payments. You were the head of the office of OLC. The OLC has traditionally taken, has taken the position the president can't be indicted what flows from the fact that the government, the Justice Department, believes that the president may have engaged in illegal activity? I've read the news accounts of the filings by Bob Mueller's office, but I haven't really delved into them in any detail. I I have to say my superficial impression is that if the focus of the Mueller investigation is going to have shifted from collusion with Russian officials or Russian government in order to affect the outcome of the last election to payments to former paramours to silence them during the election. I think that's a huge shift and not at all clear to me. First of all, I agree with OLC's view. It was in his mind that the sitting president cannot be indicted. Even under the best of circumstances, I'm not sure that that is a, that is a set of facts that lead to an indictment. I, I would have to be much more deeply convinced that the evidence regarding President Trump's engagement in this set of issues was sufficient, was knowing, was done in a certain way that um, violated the relevant statutes, and that those statutes are uniformly enforced in that way. Uh, why, why, can't the, a, why can't a president be indicted? He could be sued. Supreme Court has ruled that in a civil case. Why can't the president be indicted for illegal activities? Well, I guess simply because the president's elected to serve out a term, there is a remedy in the Constitution for a president who is, for whatever reason, is viewed as being incapable uh, or unworthy of his office. And that's the impeachment remedy. You can't use a grand jury in New York City as the means of tying up 
the president from performing his constitutional duties. You just can't. I mean, that's that's just not. But if not, under uh, if under Jones v. Clinton, the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing that a, a civil trial can be conducted in New York City or anywhere else in the country to sue the president for conduct. Why do you stop there? Right, because ar- arguably, arguably, there's a greater him. public interest in being able to deal with you know alleged criminal activity than conduct in a civil case. Well, you know, count me with Bill Barr as an executive power absolutist, if you will, but I don't think Jones v. Clinton was correctly decided. I think the president should not be subject to civil suit. I don't think he should be able to be compelled to be deposed or uh, at least significantly distracted from the requirements of his office. I think the nine nothing in the Supreme Court. Well, well, in terms uh, of that, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they can be wrong in total in unanim- unanimity as well. Um, but I think the president. I think the you know, in terms of balancing public interest here, you have on the one hand the public interest of a trial, of the resolution of a criminal matter. On the one hand, on the other hand, you have the public interest in the leader of the you know the elected leader of our country, being able to perform the duties of his office. Now, you may think that's that you want one set of rules for a leader that we like and another set of rules for a leader we don't like. Well, that's not the way the presidency is constructed in the Constitution. The principle of our Constitution is that you've got a president who is the executive branch uh, and who needs to be available to, you know, needs to be active, uh, having the energy and um, uh, uh, authority of the executive branch described so well by the framers of the Constitution uh, to carry out his 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 duties. And if you're going to let, you know, a grand jury in New York or, you know, North Carolina, for that matter, basically indict the president and then subject the president to, to a criminal trial, you've basically decided that our government is going to be completely hamstrung going forward. Because I guarantee you, if you can find a grand jury that's going to indict President Trump, and he would be answerable to that indictment and would have to defend himself while in office, then the next Democratic president, there will also be a grand jury to be found who can indict that president. Tim, I want to just, uh, before we let you go, come back to Bill Barr for a second, because we've mostly been talking about Barr, should he become attorney general, uh, dealing with all of the incoming, the Trump tweets, the investigations, you know, all of those things. But I wonder what you think kind of affirmatively Barr would want to do and achieve as attorney general? I mean, it, you know, is he does he have a conservative legal agenda that he wants to advance? What are the issues that you think he cares about? Uh, what do you think he would want to get done in the next however many years he would serve as, uh, as attorney general? Well, I think law enforcement issues generally would be top priority. Gangs uh, would be a critical interest for him. I mean, they, they were when I served with him, and the gang issues are are different, probably greater. Well, so yeah, then. so MS MS thirteen. This would be a could be a big point of common clearly, ground yeah. between Barr and uh, President uh, Trump. Yes, clearly. I I also think that a priority of his is going to be, as I mentioned earlier, reestablishing the internal credibility and morale within the Department of Justice, and the external credibility of the Department of Justice. I mean, we, the Department of Justice has taken hard shots in recent years, and I, and I won't put a specific time limit on that, but 
but the department is not the institution that it once was in terms of public credibility. The polarization of our society in some respects has been around the nature and role of the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice, that, that particular Humpty Dumpty, if you will, has to be put back together. And for the reasons I mentioned earlier, I think Bill's exactly the right person to do that, and I'm sure that's high on his agenda. Do you think there'd be any daylight between Barr and Trump on immigration? I don't know. I haven't had any conversations with Bill around immigration. I know, I'm trying to remember Bill's personal story, but I know he's the son of immigrants, uh, or at least the descendant really? of immigrants. Yeah. From where? Uh, not, not, that, not that his mother and father were immigrants, but I have a sense, maybe I'm saying too much here, but I don't know, but I believe that Bill's family has an immigrant background, as of course every American family does. But I would say that's just going to have to play out, and I'm sure it's going to be a focus of the hearings, but I wouldn't wouldn't speculate. Well, Tim, while you were talking, I did a, a quick search, and I am not finding any evidence that Bill Barr has a Twitter account, so I think the headline... From our conversation here is uh, Flanagan urges Barr to get a, tw- a Twitter account to respond to the president. Uh, uh, so. You know, you know that's the great thing about talking with you guys. I can say what I want, and you guys, you guys write the headline. Okay. Anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Tim, always great to have oh, you on the always show. A, always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. All take right. Care. Take care. All right. So what's your uh, takeaway from uh, Flanagan's insights? Well, look, you know, the one thing I remember from covering Barr the first time he was attorney general was that he commanded enormous loyalty from the team that he put around him, Um, Flanagan and a whole bunch of other people, many of whom I'm still in contact with. They love Bill Barr. They love him because he's incredibly smart. uh, He was supportive of them. He's very funny. He has a very quick and sometimes very sharp wit. A little bit of a towel-snapping culture that he built around him. I suspect this time around there are going to be more women and maybe it'll be more diverse than it was back then. But, you know, you're not going to find any of those old uh, bar people publicly criticizing him. But in the conversations I've had with a number of them um, since the news was announced that uh, Trump was going to tap him, to a person— on background, they have been shaking their heads and just bewildered that Barr would do this. And it's interesting, you know, Tim mentioned that he had not talked to Barr about this, that he had not been consulted. Well, none of the people I spoke to have actually been <laughs> consulted on this uh, by Barr. And the sense I got a little bit was Barr knows that a lot of his uh, colleagues and friends and former colleagues are going to be wondering why he's actually doing this, because you know, there's just you, you go into this administration at that higher level in that sensitive a position, and there's just going to be collateral damage. There's just no right. no right. two ways about it. Look, Barr has been around Washington for a long time. He's dealt with a lot of really difficult, uh, tricky issues. But I mean, navigating this one between uh, a president who can go off the rails. 
about the witch hunt uh, having running a justice department in which Mueller has this sprawling and, you know, from what it looks like, ongoing investigation that touches on really sensitive subjects and the president himself. And then you got the Democrats uh, in charge of the House overseeing it all. I think this is uh, a lot trickier than anything he's probably ever dealt with, or, you know, uh, almost anybody uh, in that position has probably dealt with. And um, it's going to give us plenty to talk about. Bill Barr, I will say Bill Barr is a supremely confident person. I mean, like true confidence. Uh, It's not bluster. And I do remember it was a very admittedly a very different time, not nearly as polarized. Bipartisanship still existed. But I remember that the way he dealt with uh, members of Congress on the Democratic side, he was pretty deft and he was pretty good at, at finding consensus. And let me tell you, just as on the on the way out, let me just tell you one story that I had forgotten about, but someone reminded me of this. He was obviously very involved in judicial nominations uh, back then. The attorney general plays a big role in advising the president on which judges uh, to, to pick. But uh, senators also play a big role in that process. And that was something that Barr, as a presidential powers maven, was a little bit resentful of. And so there came a time when the congressman, uh, the senator, Patrick Moynihan, Democrat from New York, wanted to impose two uh, picks on the Justice Department. And he basically held up every other nomination until he got these until he got these picks. And this really ticked off Barr. But what did he do? He went up and he said, OK, let me let me see who these people are. I'll talk to them. You know, we'll vet them and uh, we'll get back to you. So he does it. He he uh, he looks into these nominees. One of them was Sonia Sotomayor. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, he goes back to Moynihan. He says, OK, I'll take one of these and not the other one. And that was the compromise. He picks Sonia Sotomayor, um, who, <laughs> en- who ends up many years later on the Supreme Court. So Bill Barr plays a, a small, small role in the elevation to the high court of a very liberal uh, justice, uh, Sonia Sotomayor. I, I kinda, well, there, yeah. there's an irony for you. Uh, <laughs> but look, two other final quick points. I mean, one is... Um, Tim referenced Bill Barr being an executive power absolutist. And I think that's something you're going to be hearing more about because he's taken some pretty strong views about how the president doesn't have to consult with Congress about uh, military action around the world. That's going to upset a lot of Democrats, particularly uh, Tim Kaine, for instance, who's been demanding some sort of um, authorization for the use of military force uh, in the Mideast and Syria and elsewhere. And, uh, you know, the other thing, though, and Tim also touched on this, is Barr's a pretty funny guy. He's a witty guy. And I got to say, of all the AGs I've covered, and I think I've probably covered even a little more than you have, uh, <laughs> being having started a little earlier, Barr was the most accessible of any I can think of. Um, Absolutely. Not, he is not a guy who uh, shies from the press, who will be willing to engage with the press, which is another irony, given that it'll be serving a president who calls the press the enemy of the people. He just wants to make sure he better make sure that he doesn't end up on the cover of Time magazine. That won't won't help him with Donald Trump. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, lots more we'll be digging into in the weeks to come. Thanks for joining us on this special bonus episode of Skullduggery. Thanks to Tim Flanagan for joining us on this special episode of Skullduggery. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you next week.